We're going to read from two passages this morning from, um, oh, this fell off. We're going to read from two passages this morning from Isaiah chapter 61 and from Luke chapter 4. Before I get there, I want to let you know that I got a call yesterday that uh, let me know that Bill Cole's mother, Priscilla Cole, passed on Wednesday. Uh, for those of you who know Bill and Marianne, please uh, console them, send them notes. I believe that the funeral service will be on this coming Saturday at First Congregational Church in Marshfield, and you can look to the Patriot Ledger for an obituary somewhere in the next few days. Isaiah was a prophet who wrote somewhere more than 600 years before the time of Jesus, and there's one section in Isaiah's uh, book that has come down to us as one of the major books of the Old Testament that's known as the Chronicles of the Suffering Servant. From about chapter 49 to the end, the 66th chapter of Isaiah, he writes about this person who is coming, and in chapter 61, he starts off with these two verses. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And then in Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 14, imagine this scenario where people in the region of Galilee, which is a northern part of Israel, had been hearing the stories of this young, wandering preacher by the name of Jesus of Nazareth who had been moving from synagogue to synagogue around that territory preaching the good news that, that God has come in a new way and he comes back to his hometown in Nazareth and this is what we read. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. We're going to talk about that scene this morning. Let's pray for a moment. God, our Father, thank you for gathering us here in this place and in our homes around the region and wherever you have led us this morning. I pray that you would give us a greater appreciation for who Jesus is as the heir of your kingdom. And I pray that you would give us insight into not only understanding his role, but what it means for us to follow Jesus as the heir of your kingdom. Allow us to see Jesus, who came humbly and yet with authority, with a sense of power and mission that could not dissuade him 
uh, that, that where he could not be dissuaded from that mission by any of the other distractions or events that were happening around him. Give us that same kind of focus to walk so closely with Jesus that we share in his mission. Lord, you know the times that we are walking through and you know the burdens that we all carry. And my prayer this morning is that you will continue to draw near to each of us so that we will be filled with hope and with a sense of your presence that begins to transform how we go through this life and how we carry the various burdens that we share. Lord, we ask that you would walk very closely with Bill and Marianne Cole and their family this week and that your presence would be evident in their words, in their demeanor, in the way that they deal with other family members. We pray that you will speak through this important moment in, in their family's life as well. So thank you for all that we anticipate this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. I don't know if you've noticed, but Hollywood film writers are obsessed with themes about kings and kingdoms. Just think of some of the kings who have been featured over the past few decades in film. We have some Roman kings. There was Caligula, I, Claudius, Octavian. We have historical kings, Henry VIII and Henry V. We have biblical kings. There have been movies that have been made about King David and Solomon, his son. And then there are mythical kings, the man in the iron mask that was about Louis XIV and a, and a supposed twin that was hidden all that time. Or there are several movies about King Arthur. When I think about the King Arthur movies, I picture Sean Connery as King Arthur. And then there are humorous kings. Who can forget Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Or even dancing kings, Yul Brenner in The King and I. Animated kings, we have Mufasa and Simba in The Lion King for the younger set and a king who triumphs over stuttering, perhaps my favorite, in the king's speech. Those movies we have listed so far are just scratching the surface with a number of films that seem to tap into this mindset. Now, I have a theory about why we have so many movies about kings and why several of these movies have been the most well-attended and best-selling movies of their year or their time. My theory borrows from John Eldridge's book, Epic, where he argues that the most well-loved storylines of all time ultimately reach their place in our hearts because they borrow from the ultimate story of all of history, God's story of redemption and return. Perhaps none of these movies captures these themes of return and redemption better than the adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Return of the King. Tolkien pictures a broken world that longs for better days when the heir of the ancient ways and of the ancient throne returns to claim his people, win the battle against evil, and to restore justice and fellowship to the world. The return of the king isn't for everyone. It's long. Parts of it are dark and brutal. It is filled with temptation and suffering. But in the end, the heir of the kingdom returns in everything, when everything looks bleak, and then the heir, a humble warrior king, is finally crowned, and a new era of peace begins as the film ends. This morning, we're going to focus on a core feature of the kingdom motif in the Bible about the return of the heir of God to take his kingdom. Last Sunday, we built a foundation for understanding the, king of, the kingdom of God. You can think of that as kingdom 101. 
In this Kingdom Unity series, we are looking at agreements about Jesus and His kingdom. So our next step in this series focuses on the kingdom's heir. One extra note for this week, there's a great story behind the series image that you're seeing up on the screen right now. The heart in the middle of that image was painted by Emily Coulson's son, Max. We'll tell more of this story at another time, but Max has been filling the world with hearts all through this COVID period, and now Max has done that here too. Autism may have a grip on Max, but Jesus' grip on Max's heart is far greater than autism. So let me just say good morning to my North River friends, those of you who are here with us this morning. I'm, I'm glad that you've taken the time to be with me in the room here. And I also want to welcome those of you who are watching from home or wherever you have gathered around the area and around the country. We're glad that you are here, and I want you as best as you can to conjure up in your mind this sense that, that we are one church and we belong to one kingdom and that kingdom will never end. And so we all follow Jesus here and we are all learning more and more about him. I also want to thank you for inviting friends and for sharing what you are learning, for choosing to be part of a church that dares to think that God is up to something good even in the midst of this pandemic. I keep meeting new people who are invited here by a friend. And so I want to urge you to keep inviting your friends to watch with you or to come with you in person. Find a way to, to get a cup of coffee together and talk about what you are learning. We all have an impact and an effect on others as we share what we are learning about Jesus day after day. Here is one of our key, uh, key observations that I am seeing during this time. The more that our earthly institutions fail us, the more people long for and want to learn about the eternal kingdom of God. And so I hope that this theme in this series resonates with you as it leads us towards Palm Sunday and Easter. Let's talk for a few minutes about why Jesus' role as the heir of the kingdom matters. We come this morning to the fourth chapter of Luke's gospel, and this chapter presents some powerful clues regarding Jesus and the kingdom of God. However, before we get there, we need to remember the clues that have already been dropped in, in some of the passages of Scripture that lead us to the understanding that we have and the insights that we get in the Gospels. So the, the first thought that I want to run by you is that early scenes in the Bible and in the early scenes in the New Testament reveal Jesus as the heir. And let me put it this way. Mary knew. Think of that song that we sing at Christmas time. Mary, did you know? Well, here's one thing that Mary knew. Mary had been told by the angel's message to her about the identity of Jesus. And so Luke writes this in Luke 1, verses 31 and 32. The angel says, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So what did Mary know? Mary was a young, unmarried, but engaged woman when the angel visited her, and she was instantly troubled at his words. She was told that she had found favor with God and that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and she would bear a son to be called Jesus, who is the Son of the Most High. In other words, the Son of the very God of the universe who created everything that we see and everything that we know. By the way, we see the Trinity in full operation here. God the Father shows his favor. He sends the Holy Spirit who, who brings Jesus. And the Son of God, Jesus, is then born to Mary. 
And then comes a second role for Jesus. The angel also says that God will give him the throne of his father, David. Mary knew that Jesus was born as the heir of God's kingdom, fulfilling a promise that the Lord had made to David a thousand years earlier. Not only did Mary know, but the Magi knew. In Matthew chapter two, we read these words, after Jesus was born in Jerusalem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? You see, it's not just at Christmas time that these texts matter to us. They also matter to us as we are processing the information of who Jesus is. The Magi, you may be aware of this, were known as kingmakers. They were people who studied all of the disciplines of the world, and they believed that God left celestial signs in the sky to mark the birth of significant rulers. And so when they saw this particular sign to the west of them hovering over Jerusalem and Israel, they specifically claimed that this star that they had seen marked the birth of the king of the Jews, a new king who was coming, a great king. Mary knew, the Magi knew, and the evil one also knew. Luke slips this into the beginning of chapter four in the section that deals with the tempting and testing of Jesus just prior to beginning his public ministry. Let me read to you three verses, Luke four, verses five through seven. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus had not yet entered his public ministry. He was largely unknown in the world. Yet this scene takes place in a one-on-one -on -one encounter with the great tempter. The evil one indicates that he is aware of Jesus' identity as the rightful heir and of Jesus' mission to reclaim the kingdoms of the world from this usurper who ruled them. This is a highly significant scene that Luke drops here immediately before Jesus begins his public ministry to let us know that on the supernatural level there were things in play and though the evil one didn't understand everything that God was going to unfold, he knew enough to know that Jesus was worth tempting to try and see if he could dissuade him from the mission at hand. And he knew that Jesus was the heir. All of this is the backdrop for where we're moving this morning for these early scenes reveal Jesus as the heir with these clues that are dropped in the early sections of the Gospels. And then we see that special activity of the Holy Spirit confirms the special role of Jesus. Luke 4 begins with, or Luke 4, uh, 14 in the passage I read a moment ago begins with these two verses. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. We've already seen clues that the Holy Spirit was active all around Jesus. So we have the explanation to Mary that her son's birth would be a result of the Holy Spirit's work. We have the appearance of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And now we have the Holy Spirit leading Jesus into the desert to be tested by the evil one. 
So we see Jesus beginning to teach in the synagogues in the power of the Holy Spirit. That, <coughs> that should not be a surprise to us that the power of the Holy Spirit is now working in a phenomenally clear and evident way in Jesus' life. This is not just some throwaway line by Luke the Gospel writer that he is coming to them in the power of the Spirit. He is letting us sense and feel that God was up to something big and powerful as we work our way through this chapter of the gospel. If Jesus was really the rightful king and the heir of the kingdom, he was not coming into his adult years or into his public ministry alone. He returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Why does Luke mention the Holy Spirit's role accompanying Jesus at this moment? It has something to do with the way the Holy Spirit operates, that the Holy Spirit is the one who opens hearts and minds. We see this with a number of people who are formerly closed off to the, to the gospel or hardened to the way of Jesus, and yet as a friend prays for them or as they're reading the scriptures themselves and, and maybe even whispering a prayer to God, help me understand, the Holy Spirit begins to change the software of the heart so that there's a desire to want to know God in a new way. That is something that is supernatural. It's something that God does. It's why we never give up on the person who seems most closed off to the gospel in our lives. And it's the reason that we pray for other people because God does something through the leading and the inner working of his spirit that you and I are not capable of doing. So Jesus doesn't have to manipulate, cajole, or do tricks in order to capture the attention and the hearts of people. The news spread, and people flocked to him, and the praise of people followed him because of the operations of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of people. This fits with the kingdom part of the gospel narrative that Jesus walked in Holy Spirit power. The fact that the Holy Spirit was with him does not prove that he was the kingdom's heir, but this nonetheless fits our expectation of how God would mark the arrival and ministry of his very own son. The special activity of the Holy Spirit tells us that this moment was a kingdom priority to God. Even as he continued his habit of attending the synagogue in Nazareth, the Holy Spirit was with him in a very powerful way this time. So, the early scenes of the Gospels reveal Jesus as the heir. Then we see that special activity of the Holy Spirit confirms this identity of Jesus. Here's a third observation. Jesus prophetically announced this role. Luke allows us to feel and sense the anticipation in Nazareth that day. He brings us into the experience. He tells us that as Jesus entered into the synagogue that every eye was fixed on him. And then he opens up the scroll. You almost imagine this playing out in silence as he's handed the scroll. He's standing before all the people. They're wondering what he's going to say, what he's going to do. They've been hearing all of the stories of what Jesus has done in other places around Galilee. And the place is probably packed as Jesus has come back home to his own town. They've never heard him preach before. They've never heard him say these kinds of things in the home synagogue. And so he unfurls the scroll until he gets to the place where he wants to read from. And he opens it up to chapter 61, or what we know as chapter 61 of Isaiah. 
And this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stopped. He rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. Teachers in that day would sit before a congregation. And Luke says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Can you feel the tension of that moment? Can you feel the anticipation of that? And then Jesus began saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now these people in the synagogue had known Jesus for most of his early life. And for the past few months, they have listened in amazement to stories spreading all around the countryside throughout rural Galilee about what Jesus had been teaching in other synagogues, about the way that Jesus had healed people. And now Jesus was finally there, back in their town, back in Nazareth, in their synagogue. In the same way, Luke tells us that as he finished reading and rolled up the scroll, every eye was fastened on him. Why did he quote Isaiah 61? By quoting from the prophet Isaiah and stating that scripture was fulfilled in their hearing, Jesus was claiming four distinct yet overlapping roles. First was his Holy Spirit bearing role, marking a new era where the Holy Spirit was breaking out into the world like never before. Second was his prophetic role in delivering the good news of God, that God was up to something absolutely important and big and attention-worthy. Third, his messianic role as the one who brings release to those who are oppressed by all of what sin has done in the midst of our society. And the fourth role was his role as the suffering servant the king who suffers and dies to redeem his people. This was far more than just another day at church for these folks. Jesus is revealed all at once as prophet, Messiah, and king. A person who was trained in the teaching of Isaiah knew what this meant when Jesus read this portion of scripture and then read these words. Either Jesus was indeed all that his fulfillment stated inferred, or he was an imposter. And at first, they spoke well of him, and Luke tells us that they were amazed. But then if we were to read the rest of this chapter, we find that the questions started to come. So they let Jesus know, uh, so Jesus let them know if they rejected him, that others in even Gentile, in other words, non-Jewish regions, would embrace him, and he would take the gospel to them. And they drove him out of town to the edge of a cliff and they wanted to throw him off and kill him. But right at that moment, Jesus just walked right through the crowd as if they couldn't hold him, and he went on his way. When we read a gospel story like this, we live in the tension of a kingdom that is already but not yet. When we hear Jesus proclaim that these scriptures are fulfilled in him, we end up holding this announcement in that tension. The reality is that some things began to change immediately with the arrival of Jesus. Some other things would change later on as his followers would work them out in the church and some of the things that Jesus prophesied about still are yet to be completed and won't be completed until his return one day. 
An American theologian, George Eldon Ladd, several decades ago, coined a phrase that, that helps us understand this tension. He, he told us to think of the nature of Jesus' kingdom and his role with this phrase, already but not yet. Will you say that with me? Already but not yet. I hope that you, those of you who are watching at home that you'll say that same phrase because this is one that should stay with us. What that means is when we hear Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God, we live with the tension that he has already brought the kingdom of God to us and in some ways everything has changed. But in some ways there is more to come and more to be unfolded and what Jesus has started will only be completed when he finally returns. And so we live in the midst of this tension. As followers of a kingdom that is continually dawning, the more and more his people dare to live by his values, which is something we're going to talk about next Sunday. But as we do, we make that kingdom more and more apparent to others. And yet we live in a world that in many ways still rejects the news of a God who has ethical boundaries and moral expectations of us, and many people who rebel against the idea that there's a God who wants us to follow in his way. And that's the not yet part. Our world is still in transition, it is still in change, and in some ways it is still in rebellion against God. I don't know about you, but I find that tension to be something that I sense again and again, and this phrase helps me realize that the kingdom of God in our time is not fully realized. It is already here, but not yet completely fulfilled. And then a fourth observation. Jesus' parables drive this air theme home for us. Let me draw your attention to one of the parables. There are actually several that have this theme, but for the sake of time, I'm going to focus on one. It's known as the parable of the tenants. The parable of the tenants is a story that Jesus told about a, a vineyard owner who has this gorgeous, beautiful vineyard and all the vines are trimmed and the, the grapes and the product from that vineyard are bringing in a, a healthy source of income. But the vineyard owner travels to another place, perhaps to look at some of his other properties, and he puts the vineyard in the hands of some tenants. Their job is to tend the vines, to bring forth the crop, to share a lion's share of, of the produce uh, for the owner, and to take some of the profits for themselves as well. But the scene comes when he sends his emissary back to check in on the tenants and to collect the owner's portion, and they mistreat the servants of the king. Finally, he wraps up this particular parable with these words. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Imagine Jesus explaining this parable and sharing this parable with a group of Pharisees and teachers of the law who were opposed to his identity as the heir of the kingdom. He is, in fact, unfolding for them what is about to happen, that they will attempt to throw the heir out of the vineyard and to kill him so that they, they can take the kingdom for themselves. Jesus repeats this same parable in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew places this just before Jesus was about to be tried and, and arrested. 
And there it says, but when the, king, when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. With these and other parables and other events that are related to them, it becomes clear that Jesus saw himself as the heir of God's kingdom. He saw himself that way. He presented himself that way. And he left that concept in these memorable parables so that people would puzzle over them and ask what they meant and come to a deeper and deeper understanding over time over his identity claims. We should never be shocked to find people in groups that want to steal the heir's vineyard and throw Jesus outside its gates. He told us this would happen. Let me introduce to you the, the big idea that's running through this morning's message. Christians live by the values of the heir who reigns now and who will return to claim his kingdom in the end. Christians who follow Jesus, that is, live by the values of the heir who reigns now and who will return one day to claim his kingdom in the end. Now, I'd like to begin to uh, discuss some of the lessons that we are learning so far now two weeks into this series about the kingdom of God. And just some observations based on what I have shared here this morning. Here's the first kingdom living lesson. Refuse to be distracted by shortcuts to power. Notice that Jesus knew his mission, stayed on his mission, and he refused to be distracted by shortcuts to power, like the one that the evil one brought to him in the midst of the temptation. Jesus, I can save you all the trouble of going to the cross and having to be rejected by other people, even betrayed by one of your own disciples. Just bow down to me and worship me here. All these kingdoms will be yours. For Jesus, there were no shortcuts to fame, no shortcuts to political power. He steered clear of anything close to idolatry or moral compromise. We should too. Second, be careful about running with angry crowds. I looked through Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels and looked at every reference to the word crowds. In Matthew, there are 41 of them. In Mark, there are 34. In Luke, that word shows up 38 times where crowds are mentioned. Virtually every time that we see an angry crowd in the New Testament, they are not serving Jesus. The crowd that wanted to throw him off the cliff as Nazareth at Nazareth is, is an example of this. The crowd that came with Judas and the chief priest to arrest Jesus, uh, wielding clubs, was not supporting Jesus. The crowd that shouted, crucify him, was not with Jesus. The key is angry crowds. Now, there were crowds in the New Testament who were thrilled to see Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount crowd was not angry. They were absorbing the brilliance of what he said. When Jesus taught and fed 5,000 people on one day, he fed them because they had come from a great distance to hear him, even though they didn't bring food with them. They were that intent on soaking up the words of Jesus. There were several times when crowds thronged to Jesus to hear him. Those are the crowds we want to walk with. And we are wise to use great caution about following angry crowds. Third kingdom living lesson. We live in the tension of the already but not yet kingdom. This is important for us to grasp. We've seen, we see signs of the reign of Christ all around us, but notice that the prophetic side of Jesus' announcement 
pointing to great changes that would come. And some came during the life and ministry of Jesus. Some were worked out through the growth of the church, but some are yet to be worked out in this world. And so we have to study carefully what it means to live by the values of Jesus and to follow the way of Jesus. We work and pray for his kingdom to come in this world. Some changes may come during our lifetimes. Some we may die waiting for still. And we embrace and live in this tension of the already but not yet kingdom. And then a fourth lesson. Remember that the heir claims it all in the end. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says these words, But in these last days he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Live with hope. Every day remember that Jesus is coming again someday. And when he does, all things will be made right in this world. All things will be renewed. This world is part of his eternal kingdom. We answer to Jesus. And therefore, it's our job to discover and to begin to live by his values today. But we also live knowing that one day he will come to claim it all. And we look forward to that. We hope that maybe that would happen while we're still alive here on this earth. But even if not, one day he's coming again. And so it's important that we learn and live by his values. And that's what we're going to talk about more next Sunday in part three. Christians live by the values of the heir who reigns now and who will return to claim his kingdom in the end. Let me pray over you, over you and then I'm going to ask you to pray the Lord's Prayer with me today as we close out this time. Father God, I pray for North River's congregation both, both here and spread out wherever we live. And my simple prayer is this, that you will allow us to be caught up in the sense that Jesus has already announced that his kingdom has come and that we live in a new era because of the operations of the Holy Spirit, because we know the identity of Jesus as the heir. Help us to live in the midst of the tension of a kingdom that has dawned upon us and yet longs to be fulfilled, strains against the brokenness of this world looking for and anticipating the fullness and the goodness of that day of completion. Keep us faithful until that time. And now we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Hang on, we've got one final song that we're going to sing as we end our time here this morning worshiping together. Come on back next week when we talk more about living by the values of Christ's kingdom.